And that brings us to 9 a.m. on this Wednesday, the 7th of October. And welcome to the live edition of Community Pulse, your locally produced program here on the coronavirus pandemic in mid-Missouri. As a reminder, you can catch Community Pulse live here on 89.5 FM KOPN Mondays and Wednesdays from 9 a.m. to 9.30 a.m. And if you happen to miss part of the episode or would like to share it with friends, no worries. It is uploaded to our website directly afterwards, also our Facebook profile. And you can find Community Pulse on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. On today's program, we are quite pleased and privileged to welcome Columbia Public Schools board member, Dr. David Seaman. He will be interviewed by public health advocate, Ginny Chadwick. So off we go into yet another interesting conversation. Dr. Seaman, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Hey, thanks for having me. I just want to say uh, I appreciate the title, but I'm definitely not a doctor. <laughs> Thought I'd play it safe, <laughs> sir. I was like, I don't know that he uh, a PhD, but I could be wrong. So, oh, no. you know, um, board member, <laughs> Seaman, or David, I'm going to call you for the rest of the show. Uh, yeah. So much happened yesterday. And so I definitely want, and I know that the listeners are eager. You know, there was a discussion on the, the, um, the Hickman um, Parent Teacher Association. And boy, I don't know that I've seen so many comments as to what was going on already this morning on that post. But let's hit the numbers really briefly. Um, so according to Matthew Holloway's data, which I, I know that our listeners probably know, but I just want to disclose that, you know, data is coming in very slowly through the state now. Um, and so we're not getting daily case reports from many counties in um, the state. For instance, Jackson County um, hadn't reported since. Um, the 2nd of October, and they just um, identified 650 cases yesterday. So um, we're getting big numbers all at once rather than getting our daily total. So when we see our our numbers are jumping up and around, um, like the day before, we we reported for the first time less than 1,000 cases. Today we're now reporting 1,593 cases. And so we're really going to need to start looking at that seven-day average rather than um, a day-to-day count to get a clear picture of what's going on in Missouri. So only 71 jurisdictions of our 119 jurisdictions that are reporting reported yesterday. So we have an average, a seven-day average, of just about 1,500 cases per day in the state of Missouri. Again, all, you know, we're, we're hitting um, average highs. We had 35 deaths reported yesterday with a vast majority of those deaths being in Green County, which is Springfield, a community that is very similar to us, that is seeing an outbreak in their residential care facilities. Um, so with 35 deaths reported yesterday, we have an average of 21 deaths per day in the state of Missouri for COVID-19. When we look at what's happening here in Boone County, um, we are seeing some promising numbers, and I think, David, we're going to dive into these numbers because they are very much um, have an impact on what the Columbia Public School decisions are. But um, yesterday, we reported 33 cases. Um, the day before, we reported one of our, our lowest case numbers in many, many, many weeks, um, so 22 cases. Um, so we are seeing a decline in our cases reported per day, but... As um, Scott um, Clarity reported, the assistant director for the um, public health department, that our our positivity rate is still high. So we're still at 10.5%, so a little bit lower than what we had been, but still 
over double what the World Health Organization says is broad community spread, and that, as he points out, our testing numbers are down. So we are testing fewer citizens than we had in the past. And so um, we're getting those testing numbers in slowly, the negative numbers, the total number of tests, we're getting them slowly in from the state. Um, But right now, you know, we're not testing over 500 citizens in Boone County on average uh, over the given time period. And in fact, if we look back three days to the third, we only tested 139 people. Um, Right now, the numbers for the past two days look like we don't have complete reports of numbers of tests tests that were conducted because we only have 16 on the fourth and 48 on the the fifth, which means that we probably just don't have a complete picture of the number of tests. But what we do know is, on average, our number of tests are declining. So that's a concern on knowing what our true positivity rate is. So Boone County reports that there's 13 members of our community that are hospitalized, and we've had a total of 4,967 cases. So David, one of the places I go every day to look is the 14-day average per 10,000 in the Columbia Public School District, and we have had a record high of 91 cases per um, 14-day average and, you know, as low as 20.8 cases. We are currently sitting at 32.9, so we've decreased fast. Tell me, tell our listeners what that number means to you. So, yeah, so you mentioned that, that high of 90, and that was just a little less than a month ago. Um, so to have that number have dropped in such a significant fashion within about 28 days is, is very promising. Um, mm-hmm. What we would like to see, and I'm sorry, you mentioned also, I think it was 20.8. So that was probably right around when the tracker was uh, was established on August 4th. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're trying to get back to those uh, levels. However, there is some concern that because you know the virus isn't, it's not just going to disappear. It's not going anywhere. Um, are we going to be able to hit that that magical ten of that that number ten, uh, where we are able to go back for uh, five days a week in school? So if we kind of went back and did a little bit more research. A couple board members did. Um, some of those of us who are really good at math, not myself, but uh, <laughs> went back and did some more research. And it seems as though even back in June, our lowest numbers would have been right around that 20 mark. So that's something we're also looking at uh, on the side is, you know, we don't want to, to raise that level just to get kids back in school if it's not going to be a safe return. But that is something that we're going to need to look at as well, though. It's just yeah, and I have to say in 10. our community, we have so much COVID capital, and we have to decide what to prioritize as a community. I am sure that you are hearing from parents that you want to, them to prioritize getting our kids all the way back into our five-day-a-week model. Yes. But we're not there yet, at least not in what the CPS model has deemed a safe way to return. And so yesterday at the school board meeting, which was not a meeting of decision, but a meeting of information, you guys had extensive conversation about something new to most of our listeners. So we've talked about this two-day hybrid, but what was discussed yesterday was a four-day model. Can you please explain that to us? 
Yeah, so we now kind of have four different models or options on the table, formal options, uh, remaining in the virtual form that we're in, the two-day hybrid that we've kind of discussed since around August 4th when we started making these plans. Uh, yesterday, Dr. Stiefelman introduced uh, what would be kind of a four-day hybrid, which would be uh, all of our students back for four days on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. We're still maintaining that Wednesday as a teacher kind of preparation day and a day for uh, deep cleaning within our school buildings. And then we also always have the, the traditional model there as well. So for a long time, we were thinking we want to get back to this. We want to get low enough for this two-day model. What is the benefit of the four-day model over the two-day hybrid? So each of these plans has its own pros and cons. So the two-day model would have students returning just for those two days. It would be broken up into groups. And the pro there would be that we uh, are able to maintain spacing by dividing our students in half. So group A would go on Monday and Tuesday. Group B would be uh, Thursday and Friday. The issue there is that you would only have those two days in front of a teacher compared to the, the four days that we have now. Um, so it would really decrease, you know, hypothetically, it would decrease the amount of instruction and the quality of instruction uh, while simultaneously increasing the risk of infection because we would actually be back in school for two days, uh, which would be a slight increase in the rate of infection. The four-day hybrid is actually similar to the traditional model, except that the, the traditional five-day model, except that that Wednesday uh, everyone will be off for teacher preparation and cleaning. So I actually asked the question, what is the difference between four-day and traditional? Is, is the spacing different? Um, and it's not. It would be the same as a five-day model. So in that situation, you would have theoretically an increase in instruction uh, where we are actually in a class with a teacher for four days, but you would also inc you know, greatly increase the risk of infection because we can't maintain that three to six feet of distance. So let's stick with talking about this two-day hybrid model and the pros and cons to that, because I heard from Steepleman in that meeting yesterday, just listening in as a parent um, via online, I heard him say that, you know, the challenges to the hybrid are that there are pods happening now that would be um, more difficult to do once you guys go the two days of in-person instruction. And I want to make sure our listeners clearly understand this because I know that in talking with other parents, they didn't quite get that once we go to a two-day hybrid, the students would get two-day instruction, but the other three days would be totally independent learning. Correct. So, And again, we know that the biggest pro to the two-day hybrid is we only have half of the students, so half of the risk and half of the exposure to other people and the ability to social distance, which we know is very critical for this virus. So can you explain that more the challenge to the pods and the teachers for the hybrid. Right. So I'll start with pods. So when we introduced the virtual model, um, a large number of families said, you know, hey, we can't, we have to work. Parents have to go to work for eight hours a day. Um, public schooling over the last few decades has almost become that cheap alternative to childcare uh, and the way our society is structured. So if they can't, if their kids are going to be at home, then they need someone there to actually watch them and, and ensure that, you know, kids aren't 
getting into craziness. I have two kids. I know exactly how that feels. <laughs> um, so the families develop these pods where their children will be able to go to a child care center or to someone's house and there might be a tutor or there's at least a few parents there who may be stay-at-home parents or who can just be at home for the day um, and they would be helping those kids uh, with their classwork and, and just kind of keeping an eye on them. If we go to the two-day model, then you have to split those students some way. It is, and it's most likely going to be alphabetical. So, you know, let's say my last name's Seaman. So we start with an S and I have a next door neighbor whose you know, name starts with an A, last name is A. Uh, my, our kids are together in a pod. Uh, if we split it down the middle, then now that pod has been disrupted. So their kids are going on the first couple of days and my kids are going on the next couple of days. Um, so it, it disrupts those pods that way. The important part here is for our teachers, um, if you sat in a Zoom class, um, and watched our teachers perform. They are doing so admirably, um, but they are also spending an incredible amount of time um, developing instruction and answering parents' emails afterwards uh, because somebody can't figure out how to work Seesaw or a certain app won't come up or we can't find a certain online book. What you would do is you now double that amount of time because now they're doing all of that with Group A and then also once they finish with group A, then they still have to be able to answer some questions from the parents and students in group B. And then once group B is in there, then they're doing the same thing. So the risk there is, it's a very strong risk of just mental burnout for our teachers and our staff. And if that begins to occur, you can very well expect that the quality of our instruction will decrease. And Teachers will tell you that's not going to happen. I'm not going to let it happen because they, right. they're superheroes. They don't want to fail. But, you know, the human body can only take so much of some. It's one point. We so, know that our, our teachers can only be so big of a superhero, and they yes. are definitely it. Now, as many parents are at home watching the actual instruction going on, we are getting a front row view into what the daily lives of our teachers look like. So the four-day option, um, we know that the challenge is social distancing and we're saying that the benefit of the four-day option versus a five-day in-person option would be that we have one day in the middle to deep clean. We also know why it's done science that cleaning is not our surfaces is not the primary place that this virus transmits. And right. so when we think about the four-day option versus the five-day option, what do you see as the benefits? So. For the four-day option over the five-day option, I view the benefit of that extra day off as being a day for teachers to prepare. And the way we built our school calendar this year, whether it was going to be virtual, hybrid, or even now with this potential four-day model, was that we we're going to provide teachers and staff with that day to be able to prepare their curriculum for you know the next few days or even the next week. So that is the the benefit over the five-day model. And as you said, spacing is spacing is key to all of this. Um, but you can't maintain the three to six feet recommended by you know, the CDC, the White House, and, and, and the World Health Organization. Um, it's not going to work out. And we've seen that in our sister districts across the county and, and neighboring counties where they've put their kids back in for five days, and it seems to almost be on that third week consistently that, you know, there's an outbreak that happens and a school has to be closed for a day or 
uh, 70 students in Hallsville are, are now in quarantine. So if you can't hit that spacing, then nothing else really matters at this point. And I hear you on that. Yet as I listened to the meeting last night, I felt that the tone was leaning to the four-day option. And you don't need to answer because I know that you're <laughs> going to have another meeting on Monday, October the 12th, where you guys will actually make the decision on that. And so when we talk about the four-day model and and even potentially the hybrid, um, there was some dates that were potential dates that we would phase these in. And I learned, and I thought that I knew every place that COVID data was in the state, I learned the Show Me Strong Recovery Plan for the school districts. Um, that was a new website, and I, I shared it with Peter and Mallory to put on our Facebook page for our listeners. But I learned on that dashboard that the Columbia Public School has the current currently looking at a time period of 14 days through um, September the 15th, we have the second highest rate of COVID cases in our 5 to 19-year-olds. Talk about that current rate in our age demographics. Yeah, so we are very high. I believe we are second only to Joplin, and I don't have that information pulled up, and I'm trying to remember the exact number, I believe. We have 77. Yeah, 77. So... Um, one thing that Dr. Stephen also mentioned and that caught my attention was just our fall athletics numbers. So I believe we had about 164 students um, within you know, football and volleyball that were either tested positive or had to quarantine. And that 164, you know, matched up against our estimated or rounded up uh, 19,000 students is just below about 1%. And we know that all 19,000 students are not playing football or volleyball this semester. So once you factor in how many students are, that number increases dramatically. Now, the, the, the obvious answer to that is football is not something that really lends itself to social distancing, right? So Well, and that's, expect- I'll, push, I'll push back right here because I've heard many people in the community say, why did we prioritize sports before in-person learning? Yeah, so I wouldn't say that we prioritize sports. So school is compulsory, right? Everyone has to go to school um, until you hit 16, and maybe you want to say this isn't for me. Sports is a volunteer thing. And what we've seen with a lot of the same parents who have said, hey, my, I want my kid in school because they haven't had any social interaction since March, is now saying, well, I also don't want these other kids to have this type of social interaction, this voluntary social interaction where they are doing this on their own with their own parents. Um, mm-hmm. So I think taking that away from them would kind of exacerbate the same things that some of these parents are saying, hey, my kid is suffering mentally from this. Well, we're not going to take away this option from these students who, are, like I said, are doing it voluntary, whereas school right. is compulsory. Right. But then those voluntary kids are coming into our schools, and we know they're at a higher rate. So and I'm going to get really convoluted here. Have we thought about bringing the kids who are not in any sports back first? We could. Um, that also asks the question of then, am I digging into your personal life to figure out, are you mm-hmm. keeping your kid locked up in your in a room somewhere? Which, please don't do that. That's not great. Um, <laughs> are you letting your kid go have sleepovers somewhere? Are you letting them go to the park? You know, I did not have to dig into to figure out those things. And that becomes... One, it's highly difficult, and two, that's just not, not what we want to do. We don't want to be the you know, the parent police. Hey, you had your, your kids had a sleepover the other week. 
now they can't come to school because we saw it on Facebook. That's We don't want to be doing that type of thing. So one thing you guys talked about at the school board meeting was mask requirements. Can you share with our listeners what the Columbia Public School rule is, knowing that the city has a mask ordinance requiring for those 10 and above? Right. So before our our language was that we strongly encourage, um, now it will be required. Uh, Mass will be required for all students. We understand, and like I said, I have young children. Um, they don't like wearing a mask for more than five minutes. It's only cool to them for a few minutes, and they want to take it off. Um, so we're going to be encouraging them and providing kind of social stories to encourage them to say, hey, this is what we're doing now. This is how school works for the time being. Um, I know Mr. Willoughby Blake actually asked a, an a important question about what do we do when a student just says, I'm not wearing a mask? Because we don't want to be having this conversation about can we get our kids back in school and now we're, you know, potentially suspending people because they don't want to wear a mask. So there are going to have to be mitigation strategies there that do not involve, you know, kicking a kid out for a couple of days because that's not what we want to do. But we also have to ensure the safety of the other kids in the class and the teachers. Um, yeah, so and I be, would argue right now that in-person class is actually voluntary because the Columbia Public School has offered a virtual 100% online. And so if the student didn't want to wear a mask, and I know currently the online program is full, but I also heard that if there needs to be exceptions to that, it could potentially be made. Would you see that if there was a student, now that we're saying masks are mandatory, we're not we're not encouraging, but we're requiring them if a student refused to wear a mask and did not have a medical exemption, and I want to be very clear that right. the Columbia Public School has said if there's a medical exemption, the student will not need to wear a mask. Do you think that an online option would be valid for that student who refused to wear a mask? I would think that that would be a valid option, but then that gets into an entirely different conversation that we've been having for a few years about um, equity and restorative justice and I'll just be honest, as a black man, I kind of know which students are going to be the ones who are going to suffer that punitive punishment first. And I would prefer that not happen. Um, so if we could find ways to get those students into those online courses, hey, that's great. Um, I would like to avoid having those kind of confrontations between teachers and students anyway over a mask. Um, and you're right, we asked that question last night because, like as Dr. Stevenson said, we have posted the ability to be online about three different times. And someone asked the question, well, what if you know, a medical, somebody develops a medical diagnosis? Well, he said, we've, we've done this three times. And I said, well, we also know that tomorrow I could be diagnosed with cancer. So I may need that online service um, when I didn't think I needed it two months ago or even yesterday. So there are those strategies to be able to do that. But I would, I would be very, very careful about um, trying to enact any kind of punitive measures for students not wanting to wear a mask. Can you talk about the timeline? Because I know within um, the high school, the idea that these, the high school students would not be starting back until January the 19th after the first semester, when the Columbia Public School has put all of the AP classes in the first semester for these high school kids. And you're looking at a phase-in period of the 
the elementary school coming back as early as the week following the decision. So October 19th, and then at quarter for the middle school, November the 5th, and then not until January the 19th. And, and that was disclosed last night for a transition period. Do you think our high schoolers might be more resilient and able to transition into a high school platform earlier? Oh, yeah, I think all of our students are, are more resilient than we think they are. Um, the question is, do we disrupt that high school learning, which I think we can all agree is, is much more difficult than obviously elementary or middle school, especially for juniors. I think Jen Ruck said mentioned your junior year is going to be your toughest year in high school. All right. So do we disrupt that um, sometime in around, or right around November 5th when middle school goes? simply to get them back into school for a few weeks before the holiday season starts to kick in. Um, and I don't, think that's, I don't think that's fair to those students. They are resilient, but it will also, as we've seen with some parents have talked about their high school students suffering through virtual. So I don't want to jump, I don't want to jump the gun there and just say, Hey, we're just going to move you because we can right now. We want to make sure that it's consistent for them and that we're not, um, we're not kind of cutting their, their year and a half there. We can start them at January 9th at January 19th at the beginning of the semester. I think that's more beneficial. And, you know, as we all know, as we bring more people back together in our community, as more people gather, we see higher um, numbers. And so with the idea of the elementary coming on October 19th and then phasing in the middle school on November 5th, so about three weeks you know, and we know the incubation period of this virus is about 14 days. Um, and then not bringing the high school back until January 19th. So the idea that the high school students would receive no in-person instruction that entire first semester. And I, I'm just seeing what is being posted on social media, um, David, and I'm sure you're getting comments as well. But do you think that might be the the, the biggest or hardest um, pushback that you get as a board member? Um, I think it would be the greatest pushback if we decide to go with the four-day model. I think if we did stay virtual or did the two-day or even somehow went five-day, then we'd have other pushbacks there. Maybe not five-day, but the other models would have their own pushbacks. But yeah, I think that would probably be the largest pushback. I have no doubt that middle school parents would ask the same question. Why do I have to wait until November 5th? Why can't my kid go back on October 19th with, with the elementary school kids or the, or the following week? Um, mm -hmm. So, And I've heard parents say, well, what about bringing ninth graders in? And, and I try to point out that a lot of ninth graders are in 10th, 11th, 12th grade classes, that they right. take AP, you know, chemistry together and calculus together, that it's, we don't have ninth grade classes, 10th grade classes. So, I have a question for you, reiterating that we only have so much COVID capital in our community. Every time we bring people together, we risk higher rates of exposure. Um, we see peaks in our virus, which we clearly saw when we brought the university back. We have decided to have a home football game um, that was not planned um, because of the hurricane. So we're bringing in a home football game here this weekend that we didn't anticipate. What communication is going on between the city, the county, the university, and the school board in identifying where we use our COVID capital? So what kind of communication is taking place? Um, yeah, you, how often and that, how, how clearly and transparently do you feel that communication is happening? Um, so, I mean, for the average board member like myself, I'm not 
obviously talking to, to Chancellor Choi or, or Mayor Therese or anyone of that nature. Um, I will reach out to a city council person every once in a while um, to reach out to board members from other districts, um, just kind mm -hmm. of get a feel for how things are working for them. Um, and that's kind of why we have a, a superintendent and then administration. Uh, they're there to reach out to those folks and, and provide information, and that's how they're developing their plan. Yeah, I just like looking at the White House Coronavirus Task Force report saying that all bars in Boone County should be shut down, yet we have yes. our kids not in-person school and our bars open. I, I just am always curious what, you know, because these are political decisions that we're making as a community. So I, I'm wondering, okay, very last thing, um, yeah. outdoor education. Uh, where Where do you see... Because um, I know that our science director, Mike, has been fabulous at getting outdoor education. But what about just opening an entirely, you know, outdoor education school? So you're just talking about just, just kind of being outside and in the fresh air and, and the sunshine, right? Yeah. We know that the virus spreads yeah. less outdoors. Yeah. So I, I, that sounds amazing. And I would even love to be a part of that type of uh, situation. But I think realistically we're about to come up on a Missouri winter um, yep. and that is going to pose some significant challenges. I don't want kindergartners out, outside in big winter coats and hats and gloves trying to learn, you know, 32 degree temperatures. So that would have been something that, Hey, if we're still, I'm sure we'll still be doing this in the spring, but when the spring rolls around, that would be, that'd be an amazing concept to try to institute. So there is one public or private school in Columbia that's doing all outdoors. David, I want to thank you so much. There's a lot going on. Um, the Columbia School Board has been so thoughtful and had extensive public conversations. Any last things for our listeners? No, I just I want to make sure everybody understands, like, we're all trying to be flexible. As new information comes up, um, as Dr. Siebelman said, leadership is about taking that new information and admitting that, hey, this plan that we developed a few months ago might not be correct now. We need to adjust. Uh, we're not trying to change the goalpost. We're just trying to ensure that when we are able to send our kids back to school, because we all want our kids back to school, I want my kids out of my house tomorrow, um, <laughs> that we can do so in a way that we're not sending them back for a week, shutting down for two weeks, come back for another week, shut down for another week. No, we want that continuity of education so they can actually learn with their teachers. Excellent. Thank you so much, Peter. Back to you in the studio, and thank you, KOPN listeners. Thank you very much, Ginny, and also thank you to David Seaman, not Dr. Seaman, but uh, he was so eloquent we thought we might accord him a title there. Um, for another great discussion here on Community Pulse, that will wrap it up for today's edition. Our next live edition will come your way Monday at 9 a.m. In the meantime, should you like to catch up, a reminder that you can find all backdated episodes on our website, our Facebook feed, and also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So, with a long time to go before we speak again, we bid you a pleasant weekend. Do stay safe, do stay informed, and don't forget that cheerful confidence, hard as it may be to cultivate, uh, that your body can fight infection and your immune system can be quite strong in the face of this threat. We'll speak to you again on Monday, Columbia. 51% is next.